Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning. Welcome to IWF's Working for Women podcast. I'm Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum, and today I'm here with Linda Gorman, Director of Healthcare Policy at the Independence Institute in Denver, Colorado. Linda is a former academic economist, and she has written extensively about the problems created by government interference in healthcare decisions and the promise of consumer-directed healthcare. In addition to her work for the Independence Institute, she has written for professional journals, periodicals, newspapers, and specialist blogs. In 2015, she was appointed to the Colorado Commission on Affordable Health Care. Linda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. These days, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are hearing about something called single-payer health care. This idea is nothing new, of course, but there's been some interesting developments. First, we have a pretty serious presidential candidate, Senator Bernie Sanders, who supports turning the United States health system into a Medicare for all or single payer system. And then in Colorado, where Linda and I both live, there's a ballot initiative called Colorado Care or Amendment 69, which would establish a single payer system in Colorado. So before we dive into those two things specifically, Linda, can you just give our listeners a definition of what single payer actually means. I know it's a term that we hear thrown around often, but what is it exactly and how is it different from or similar to the term socialized medicine? Well, I think that people use the two terms interchangeably sometimes. Um, Single payer, I think, is usually used to mean that there's only one entity who can pay for health care. Socialized medicine often means that people who pay are not necessarily the same as those who get the care. So it's a a slight difference um, because obviously under single payer, the people who pay are very different than those who get the care as well. But this is different than what happens under true health insurance. When I'm buying true health insurance, I'm paying an insurance company to take some risk of unexpected events for me. And so everybody's paying a premium, you know, similar premiums for that unexpected risk, but only a few people have bad things happen to them. So they're, they're slightly different, and um, it makes a difference when you think about it, if you get the definitions clear. Um, right. So not only so would... The, the fact that Obamacare has done away with true insurance is one reason why premiums have risen so much and people are paying so much out of pocket. I see. So not only under single payer is, you know, I guess it's not really accurate to say that the government becomes the insurance company for everyone because it's not even acting like true insurance. Right. And that's a very inefficient way to do it, of course, because what you're doing then is as you raise the tax, say, on labor or income, depending on how you tax it, you give people a disincentive to work. And so you're reducing production in the whole economy. And that's a cost that's never calculated in these healthcare discussions, but it's a mm. big one. Mm-hmm. Almost like a opportunity costs, what we might have seen Absolutely. in our economy if we, if we hadn't enacted something like single payer. So just to clarify, a single payer healthcare system, is that the same kind of system that exists today in countries like Canada, for example? Um, the Canadian one is definitely a single payer system. The way they enforce it in Canada is that um, until very recently, Physicians or other health providers could only accept payments from the provincial health plans. So if you were licensed to give medical care, the only people by law you could take money from were the provincial health plans. And so basically you couldn't buy 
uh, health care in Canada, if you had money, you had to come to the United States. Because okay. it was illegal for anybody to take your money. So they, they could say, well, you know, we're not keeping you from buying health care. And that's true. They were just keeping people from accepting it. U.S. Medicare does the same thing. Under U.S. Medicare, balance billing is prohibited. So you have to sell the care at the Medicare price if you accept Medicare patients. And either they're paying out of pocket or they're having Medicare pay the price. So obviously nobody's going to pay out of pocket, right? I see. So we already have a single-payer system for most people over the age of 65 in the Medicare program? Would that be accurate to say? Um, well, yes, although you can still pay cash, right, right. if you want to. Uh, the true single-payer system in the U.S. would be the VA. Okay. Where if you go to VA health care and you want VA to pay for your health care, you only have one choice. You have to go to VA doctors and VA hospitals. Under Medicare, at least you have a choice of hospitals. You can go, you know, anywhere in the country unless you're under Part C kind of thing. Wow. So the VA is a true single-payer system, and it's no accident that it's like the worst health care in the U.S. So it seems like to be a true single-payer, not only does the government establish itself as the funder of health care, but it also prohibits providers from accepting other forms of payment so that not only is it the one health funder, but it is the only health funder. Is that right? I would say that's probably a pretty good definition. Okay. So let's say that Senator Bernie Sanders, this is just hypothetical, let's say he becomes the next president. And let's also ignore uh, for just a moment the political challenges associated with passing a a single-payer health care system. But let's imagine that this becomes federal law in the United States. So some people... Obviously, a lot of people support Senator Sanders, and they believe that his health care plan would be a good thing because they say it ensures that everyone has access to some kind of medical care, and they say this would be fair and equitable. Uh, Some people believe it's the compassionate thing to do. Are they right? Do they have any point? Would single-payer be good for the United States? My experience is that people who like single-payer are the sorts of people who like things that look good on paper. Hmm. Um, The problem with single payer is that it looks great on paper, but it works very poorly in the real world. All healthcare systems have to ration somehow because everybody wants more healthcare than, you know, can be provided. I would love to have somebody I could call every minute for every twitch in my body and a personal trainer and somebody that, you know, cleans my teeth every other week or whatever, but it's too expensive. You know, we don't have enough resources to do that for everyone. So we ration the U.S. by a combination of price and political subsidy. When you ration by single payer, it means that the government is controlling who gets what. And so in a government-controlled system, the people that get health care are the same people who get, you know, preferential government treatment for everything else. So that's the wealthy, the well-connected, and the politically powerful. And those are the people that get the best health care under single payer systems. The idea that everyone is treated fairly, you know, is is a pipe dream because usually when people are talking about this, they're never thinking about the waiting lists that exist in single-payer systems. In the VA, they had secret waiting lists because waiting lists were illegal, right? Um, so they hid them. In, in all the European countries, there are long waiting lists for surgery. There are huge waiting lists in Canada. You can't even get appointments in Canada, Um unless you go to the emergency room, unless you have a physician, but you can't get a physician because there aren't enough physicians. So single-payer systems are inherently unfair, um, 
It just depends on whether you think you're going to get better care under them than you do for um, a system that rations like the U.S. system does. Yeah, I think um, for a, a long time there's been a debate about the quality of the health care system in the United States. And some international organizations have um, given us bad marks for, for things like uh, our infant mortality rate or our longevity, things that I think have relatively little to do with the quality of health care that people receive in the United States because we have other issues. For example, we have a much higher obesity rate than other countries, which contributes to high-risk births, but it also contributes to other health problems that might cause us to, to live shorter lives. And we have a, a lot of violence uh, in the United States that contributes to, to a shorter lifespan. But uh, overall, what do you believe about the quality of our healthcare system and the patient care that people receive in the United States and how that would be affected if we passed a single-payer system? Well, over the last 20 years, there's been a big ideological war going on about health care. And so a lot of the people who want single-payer have done their best to portray the U.S. system as having poor quality. Mm-hmm. And what they have done is they've used um, statistics from the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development to paint the U.S. system as very poor. For, and, and they do it in ways that are very effective but are actually wrong. They're playing with the data incorrectly. Let, let me give you an example. Um, the infant mortality rate that you mentioned is a terrific example because um, for a long time, the U.S. showed higher infant mortality rates than um, European countries. And a bunch of epidemiologists got together in the late 90s, and they said, you know, this, this statistic just doesn't smell right. The U.S. spends all this money on neonatal infant care. Um, it has lots of kids that are surviving the first 24 hours, which is when most neonates die if they're vastly underweight. How is it that these statistics are the way they are? Maybe they're wrong. And so they went out and they looked at the definition of infant mortality in the different countries, and they found out that the definition of a live birth varied from country to country. So in the U.S. and Canada, a live birth is defined as any child born who shows any sign of life. In other countries, they had to be a certain weight or a certain length, or sometimes they wouldn't give them any help and they wait for them to die and then retroactively classify them as a stillborn baby. So they were messing with the statistics at the very basis of the vital statistic. When you correct for these problems, by birth weight, U.S. babies have a better chance of survival than any other children in the world. So all of a sudden, things look a lot different. And you can look at things like life expectancy and you can say to yourself, okay, at what age does the health system really matter? You know, for 20-year-olds, they're dying from other things than medical problems. They're dying from car crashes. They're dying from, you know, gunshot wounds, whatever. But at 65 or 75 or 80, the health system makes a big difference in people's survival. And what people who looked at this found was that from 80 on up, U.S. elderly have a longer lifespan than anywhere else in the world. Wow. Because it looks like the U.S. healthcare system is actually pretty good at keeping people alive. One of the reasons we have more chronic disease in the U.S. is people with chronic disease in the U.S. survive. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a surprise. I mean, health, some, some irony you know, there. <laughs> it's, always, it's always cheaper, and this is one of the problems with politically controlled systems that people need to think about very carefully before they put government in control of their health care. And that is it's always cheaper to let people die than it is to treat them. Mm-hmm. So if you have a health care system which is run by government bureaucrats who are bean counters, who only care about how much they're spending, 
the, the, the pressure is always to let the seriously ill die because there aren't very many of them and they're not voting anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, the really cynical look at this is the way yeah. it works. Wow. Well, that's not a very good uh, prognosis for patients under a single-payer system or a government-controlled healthcare no, system. No, <laughs> they don't uh, do well at all. I have a question. You know, I don't know if I, I guess you may know this, Linda. When I moved to Denver, it was initially because I was marrying um, a young man who started a medical residency here. So my husband's a doctor. And so personally, I'm, I'm curious, and I think our listeners w- would also like to know, how would a single-payer healthcare system affect doctors and other healthcare providers? Because they're, of course, a, an important part of our healthcare delivery system. What happens to them under a, a single-payer system? Um, they, the same thing that happened to teachers when the government took over public education. Basically what happened is the teaching profession used to be held in very high regard. Um, teachers were professionals. You know, they did their best even when no one was looking. When government takes over, it puts so many rules and regulations and everything that people ultimately just give up. They punch their time clock and they're out of there. Um, so that's what it's going to do to the medical profession in the U.S. as well. I can give you a specific example from Canada. Um, people came in and said, well, we don't like this fee-for-service stuff anymore. You know, fee-for-service for me is just another word for productivity. You work hard and you get paid more, right? Um, but no, fee-for-service was causing too much unnecessary medical treatment. So the Canadian physicians were put on a budget. They were given an annual salary. And the budget was sort of like, you see so many patients, you get paid X amount per visit, sort of like Colorado care would work, and then you're done. Well, what the Canadian physicians realized was if they just worked hard for, you know, January through October or something, then they've used up their budget and they can go on vacation. Hmm. So why wouldn't you? You know, why would you stick around for two months and give care for free? So what you have to think about is physicians are extremely bright, very able people. We select for that. And how do you incentivize them to work as hard as they can and care for as many people as they can? Um, you don't do that by giving them a salary and then hedging them about with rules. Man, uh, I just saw recently in the news, actually, a junior doctor's strike in, uh, in England, which has a, a, a different kind of healthcare system under the NHS, but they've, they've had a pretty serious strike going on uh, this week. And, and I believe that a lot of the junior doctors are blaming uh, specific politician for a, a contract that they don't like. And it just keeps, um, you know, it keeps occurring to me, although I'm not sure if it occurs to a lot of people in England that, you know, the reason politicians are in control of the doctor's contracts is because the government's in control of the healthcare system. But, oh, that's a, Absolutely. That's, that's a big part of the, have, the issue there as well. Yeah. If you have monopoly control, then you're going to get unions and contracts and strikes. If you don't have monopoly control, you don't have single payer, but hospital, you know, doctor's working for himself, he's not going to strike. If the doctor's working for a hospital, he's going to say, I hate you, I'm going to another hospital. Uh. You don't strike. You still get labor from people. But when government controls everything, the only solution people have is not to work. Right. Now, I I think a lot of people perceive critics of uh, single payer to be people who are mostly concerned about money. I'm, you know, you and I are critics of single payer. And I I would say probably first and foremost, one argument against single payer is the effects like we've discussed on patients and on doctors and on the quality of our healthcare system. But there is also 
I, I think a concern about how single payer would affect our budget. It's no secret that Americans spend a lot of dollars today, both publicly uh, and our private dollars on health care. And one of the arguments from single payer advocates is, is they believe that single payer would actually save money. And they make this argument. They say, um, if, if we didn't have to pay for health care privately and we paid for it through a tax, then ultimately we'd spend less money on health care. I don't know if that's if you believe that's true or not, but I wanted to ask you, how would single payer uh, affect our pocketbooks and also how would it affect our national budget if it were enacted at the national level or our state budget if it were enacted here in Colorado? Well, we know that single payer blows up national budgets and state budgets because we can just look at Medicaid expansion in states where they project that it's only going to be so much and that it's 200% more. Wow. And the same thing happened when the federal government enacted Medicare. Um, you know, their projections were immediately off by hundreds and hundreds of percents, right? So they always underestimate the cost of these things. But when people think about this, I think it's extremely important to separate their individual budgets from the government budget because too much of the time in healthcare. People talk about, we spend too much. I'm like, who spends too much? You know, Am I mm -hmm. spending too much because I decide to get braces for my kid? Mm -hmm. um, am I spending too much because I decide to get a more expensive set of um, eyeglasses than a less expensive set, progressives rather than bifocals? Who's going to decide who spends too much? Okay. So, um, you know, part of the problem is when you look at education, which schools are the most expensive to run? Well, the schools that are most expensive to run are the public schools in every single way you look at them. Salaries, um, benefits, cost per pupil, the public schools are very expensive. You look at the Catholic schools, which have to attract people and keep tuitions reasonable, they're much less expensive to run. And the same is true for many other sort of intermediate private schools. So healthcare is not that different than education. If you look at the actual cost, the all-in cost of running a single-payer system, and you include all the costs. You include the cost of rate of, of, of getting the money through taxes and the losses to the economy that happen because of taxes, and you look at the cost of increased fraud because you don't have good fraud prevention because government doesn't care, and you look at the cost of waiting lists and things like that, um, which Patricia Danzen did when she um, compared Canada with the U.S., you find actually that the private financing system is less expensive. And if you think about it, it makes sense because in the private sector, when people have to work to attract patients, they're really concerned about costs. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm paying cash for procedure, I care how much they're charging me. If government's paying for the procedure, we have a negotiation, and who can tell, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier for government bureaucrats to just say, okay, you know, we don't want the doctor's strike, we'll raise your will raise your uh, rates. But in the private sector, if the doctor's charging me too much, I can say, oh, see ya, I'm going to another place. So I imagine a lot of these consequences that we've discussed on, on budgets and on the quality of health care, on doctors and patients, would hold true regardless of if single-payer were to be passed at the federal level or here in Colorado at the state level. But what can you tell us about Amendment 69 in Colorado, what's called Colorado Care. What's Is there anything uh, different about having a single-payer system at the state level versus the federal? And what do you think that Colorado voters should be keeping in mind about this proposal as they go to the polls 
uh, this November, and, and they have the chance to vote yes or no? Um, to me, the two biggest things, or three things. One, Colorado Care is not health insurance. It says that specifically in um, the amendment. So you're probably going to have to carry some sort of health insurance anyway because the care you may need could be out of state. Colorado is not known as a medical you know, capital. It's not big enough, right? So you may need to go out of state for specialist cancer care or something like that. You're going to want the money to do that. You're going to have to have some sort of insurance. Second thing is that it's a 10% tax increase to start. A very small fraction of uh, people filing returns in Colorado pay about 30% of the taxes, the income taxes. Do you think they're going to stay around and keep doing that if you arbitrarily increase their taxes by 10%? I don't think so. So you're going to cause a huge outmigration of um, people by taxing um, by that much more. And, and that's actually, you know, that would give us the highest income tax in the country. Wow. So don't think things are going to remain the same because people with high incomes are very mobile and they'll leave. The third thing to think about is that you are creating an entity that's completely outside of all of the good government controls that have developed over the last 150 years. That means that you're creating a huge slush fund that's controlled by a very small group of people. And you're going to see crony capitalism like you've never seen before. So you won't have much control over what health care they decide to provide. Um, they will provide health care to anybody who lives in the state, whether or not they're a citizen. Um, they have no way of determining how long somebody has lived in the state because forged documents are rampant. And so basically you are saying open season on whoever wants to come to Colorado for health care and you have to pay for it. So it's not really a good idea from that perspective. I, I always think of a quote from Margaret Thatcher about socialism. She said the, prob the problem with <laughs> socialism is, is that you, uh, you, you run out of other people's money. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. what you said about Colorado care makes me think the problem with Colorado care is you run other people's money out of the state. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like pretty much. That's be one of the consequences. Really yeah. And, you know, as a, as a uh, transplant to Colorado and there are many transplants to Colorado, sometimes I get the feeling from Colorado natives that they would like an out migration, that they would like many of us to go home. But I don't think they want uh, the, the most productive citizens to, to be the ones to leave Colorado. So that seems to be one of the consequences. Well, you're, you're putting a certain kind of selection into place if you vote for Colorado Care, and you have to think about whether, in fact, you'd want to live under that kind of selection. We've already seen it to some extent with Medicaid expansion. It's been really interesting. Um, Tennessee, and you probably, this is too much, but Tennessee was the only state in recent history to reduce its Medicaid budget because it had expanded it so much that literally the state budget was in danger of going into bankruptcy. So they cut their Medicaid rolls. And what happened was not only did their spending go down you know, a great deal, but um, their, their participation in the workforce went up. So when you give people incentives not to work, they don't work. If you provide all their health care, that's a big incentive not to work. So it changes all kinds of things in the economy beyond, you know, whether or not your kids can get their flu shots or whatever. Right. Wow, this is just a wealth of information about single payer. Thank you, Linda, so much for being our guest today. I'm sure our listeners feel like they've learned a lot. Um, 
if our listeners want to learn even more about you or your work or about single payer, uh, where should they go? Do you have a website or other resources that you would recommend on this topic? We do. Um, the Independence Institute has a website. Um, you can go to you know, just Google Independence Institute in Denver and it'll show up. Or you can go to i2i.org. That's letter I, number two, letter I.org. And all of our papers and publications are there. And our goal is basically to find private solutions to public problems. That's wonderful. I've uh, visited our friends at the Independence Institute several times, and it is just an excellent free market organization in the state of Colorado. The state is very lucky to have II here um, in Denver. Thank you again. Uh, This has been an IWF Working for Women podcast with our guest, Linda Gorman. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to learn more about the Independent Women's Forum or other podcasts like this one, visit IWF.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.